introduce Steve B, and he's going to speak to us about Beyond My Wildest Dreams. Hi, everybody. My name is Steve B, and I'm a grateful recovering food addict. And um, I'm very, very happy to be here. Could we start off with, please, with just a moment of silence? Thank you. Thank you. I think every good meeting uh, should have a literature table. And so I brought mine with me. (laughs) I joked with someone that the session will only be eight hours. And if you have to get up to relieve yourself, I'll understand you won't bother. So actually, I will not be reading my library, but there's uh, reasons for what I'm doing. So as I said, I'm a grateful recovering food addict. When I came in the program and talked about being a compulsive eater, I, I, I had memories of just, you know, eating a bowl of fruit slowly and eating till the whole thing was gone. It was kind of compulsive. But I, I really identified with myself as an addict. And I ate to a point of insanity. I ate because when I was younger, food was my best friend. I had an unhappy life and an unhappy family. And I could always find refuge in food. It was, in fact, the most dependable friend I had in my childhood. It never failed me. And um, sugar was at the top of of, uh, my list as I progressed and things. So at first I started to gain gain, gain, uh, weight as a kid. And uh, one of my earliest memories, I was staying with an aunt of mine, was very important to me in my life, and I had lived with her for 16 months one time, went to school there, and um, it was a lovely time. And, and once my Aunt Darthula, that's her name, the old-fashioned North Carolina kind of name, my Aunt Darthula said to me, she said, boy, I really love cooking for you. I had no idea what she meant. And so I said, Aunt Darthula, why do you love cooking for me? She, because... You enjoy eating more than everyone I met. <laughs> I enjoyed food more than any she had met. She was one of 13 children, and she had a large family. She met a lot of people, and I was the one that had the distinction that I enjoyed eating more. And she didn't know, I didn't know, that I was trying to fill myself with food when I really needed to be filled with other good things in life, nurturing things, healthy things. And um, so the circumstances had, I stayed with them for a year. I got to say that they uh, lived above a mom-and-pop store that they ran. And food was pretty uh, simple and basic. We were never hungry, but back home we were eating soup and, canned soup and sandwiches a lot. And uh, so she was from the South, and she was cooking, and she would, you know, make a big meal. And in the South, also, when you come from a big family, you cook a lot. And because people come later, just walk in, and then you could feed them a meal. So I had uh, three meals a day and sometimes a snack. And if you're a grocery store and you want a couple snack things, 
your aunt or your uncle say, okay, go ahead, do that. There was never, uh, never a problem with that. But we'd have leftover food, and then we would have kind of what we had, which was a kind of tradition, a TV party at night. And uh, so we would often eat the equivalent of another meal when the store closed at 10 o'clock at night. And uh, so I did, I did gain quite a bit of weight. And um, when I came home, I had my first lesson in shame. Shame. Um, I can, you know, certain things we can remember pretty clearly. Like, how could we remember that? But I remember walking in the front door, and then I walked through the living room. My mother was sitting in the dining room. And she said, oh, my goodness, what have they done with you? What have they done with you? And she told me that I was so fat that she couldn't see my eyes. Now, I was, I had, I had, in Cherry Hill School in Maryland, I had gone to the third grade, and I was getting ready to go back to Eugene Field Elementary for the fourth grade. And it just seemed to me kind of preposterous. If I could see her, I could clearly see her, why couldn't she see my eyes? But this was, you know, she had kind of sloppy ways of saying things and saying hurtful things. And I'm pretty sure she didn't know that. And she certainly wouldn't have thought I would remember that. Potentially, I can't say I'll remember that for the rest of my life. That used to be a good name. Now I'm going to be 72 in, in May, and I can't say I will remember any one thing for the rest of my life. And that's not because I'm overeating, that's because I'm getting older. And that's the, way, that's the way it is. So it was very painful. I felt tremendously shamed by that incident. And um, I ran into other situations. I, you know, I don't understand people. Uh, if we fast forward to when I was an adult man, you know, I was at a education conference in downtown Chicago, and one of the employees was making fun of my, he referred to it as my eating muscle, my pot belly. I had a big pot belly. Why a stranger employed by a hotel would insult me is, I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, I had been told that I was fat by a number of people, strange people. And it seems like sometimes people who are overweight are fair game. Uh, it's a painful thing. They may not know it, but that's where it was. So uh, in the beginning, I just liked food. I wasn't a food addict, but things seemed to progress. I ate more and more and more. I started to eat out of anger. I had never stolen food before. Now I stole food. I had stolen money out of my mother's wallet, and I would go buy food with it. Now, I, you know, our meals were not that that uh, great, but I was I loved food, and food had payoffs for me. And so it, it, later years I thought, you know, well, if you give some money to a little boy, he might go buy some yo-yos and water pistols and stuff like that. And I, I went at, a, at lunchtime, and I bought, like, a complete platter of food. And... Um, and that was that was kind of uh, strange. So food became more and more important to me. And then uh, later on, I I just started eating in quantities. I started graze eating like crazy. Me, television, and Home Alone was setting me up for disaster. Long time disaster. 
and I didn't know it back then. But I used to eat real fast. Sometimes I would burn my lip, burn my cheek, burn my dumb. Sometimes I would bite my tongue. I would bite my cheeks. I remember standing one day and I'd open a glass jar and I'd turn the lid and some of the glass broke off. And I was thought, how in the heck am I going to get that glass out? And how can I be sure? And I was sitting on a fence deciding whether I was going to keep this food and eat it or whether I was just going to throw it away. And there was a dilemma there. I imagined glass going through my system. (laughs) And eventually, but the fact that that was a debate in my mind, I felt even a little persecuted, like I'd been wronged by life. Like, how did this happen? How did this happen to me? And thank goodness I didn't. I was at a, a restaurant, and the food tasted a little tinted. You know, it wasn't like real bad. It wasn't that real bad. My sponsor said, well, whenever you say it's not that bad, Steve, it's usually that bad and a whole lot worse. (laughs) And um, the idea of having to call the waitress over and place an order again and wait for the food to come was something that I could not have tolerance for. So I went ahead and ate the food. Anyway, for a short period of time in my adult life, I tried out binging and purging. And I don't know how many times I did. It may have been as little as a half a dozen times. I had done it with the light bulb moment was like, if it doesn't stay down, it won't make me, doesn't matter how much I eat, what quantity or what combination. It's like a free ticket. And like, this was something that I thought I would be able to enjoy. So about the fifth or sixth time, the last time, I was looking at the mirror in the bathroom, and I looked, and tears were streaming down my eyes. My face was red, and my eyes were bloodshot. And I knew, like always, my voice would be hoarse if I someone asked to talk with me after I had done that. And at that moment, I had a true light bulb moment. It's like the notion that I can binge and purge and not hurt anybody. It's just a big fat lie. And so at that time, I made a commitment that whatever goes in stays in, no matter what. And thank goodness that could stick for me at that time. That wasn't my problem. In early recovery, I met a woman... This goes back about 36 years. I met a woman, and she had what was a $75 a day junk food habit. She was a binge and purger. That's probably close to $200 by money at this time that she was going. She was a college student. She didn't have that kind of money to spend on food. But that was one of her priorities, her addiction. And... uh, so, I uh, so things just pro- uh, progressed, sneaking, uh, being ashamed, and I finally, you know, I finally realized like, you put this in you, and you get bigger, and you get bigger. There's a cause and effect here, and you get bigger. That's what happens. All the way to where I went up to 207 pounds, and um, 
Actually, it was after I had this kind of worst time with food, uh, the binging and purging, that I actually found out that there was such a thing as 12-step programs and that there was a program over anonymous. And um, there was an office downtown on Dearborn Avenue. You could call, call up. I called up. It was kind of a funny conversation. I don't know if she thought it was funny, but <laughs> when I look back at myself, it, it's a joke. <laughs> But, you know, I asked her at least three times, could you tell me something about the program? And three times she told me the best way to find out of the program is to go to a meeting. <laughs> it was beyond her job description to describe over the phone. She had other work to do, you know, secretarial work to do. And... I couldn't believe she wouldn't answer my question. She said she could send me some stuff in the mail, and she did it, and it was the packet, the packet that has kind of the characteristics. And so I looked at that, and I don't remember how many it is. Let's say it's 15 things, 17 things. All of them applied except two. I looked at it again, and one of those two was a maybe. <laughs> a maybe. So there was a notion like this might be my problem here. This might be my problem. And so she sent me that information, including ah, a meeting list. And so I wasn't ready yet, so I put it on the shelf, on the bookshelf, to collect dust. And I'll get back to you. I'll get back to you. And uh, it took more pain, more self-disgust, more self-loathing for me to do anything about it. And then... Then I decided that I would do something about it, and I went to my first meeting. So I was kind of underdressed most of the time. I was kind of a, it was kind of the end of kind of a hippie stage for me. And so I walked into this uh, Hyatt Hotel on Wacker Drive downtown. And I had a, you know, a tattered uh, army coat on and holes in my knees, holes in my gym shoes. And I walked in, and it was like a huge, they had trees going there. They had a water fountain, and they had someone with a grand piano playing music. I have never felt more out of place at any other time of my life. I was a broken person. I wanted to be home alone. And here I am. And then, then... I I uh, I didn't realize what was going on, so I didn't know where the meeting was in the hotel. So here I am, f feeling you know not at home, and I knew I you know I had some sense of what the word anonymous means. And I, I walked up to the concierge, this cute little woman in a little jacket and all that stuff, and I had to ask her, "Where is the Overeaters Anonymous meeting, please?" I didn't feel very anonymous at that time. All I had to do is I could call from home and find out where it is. I could pick up a phone anywhere in the hotel. The agreement was the hotel is we got a room for you, but we have to be flexible about what you, what you do. So that was my first meeting. So it went well. I thought there's really something here for me. One of, the, one of the guys was talking about cocaine addiction and alcoholism, and he had what looked to me like a you know, multi-thousand dollar suit on. And so I was, alcohol, cocaine, am I in the right room? And uh, the one thing that was the biggest problem for me is a question of trust. The one thing that I could not understand is, why in the heck are these people being so nice to me? 
Why are they so friendly? They don't know me. I just walked into the room. I probably said my name and not much more at the meeting. And it was a mystery to me. And then my keen intellectual mind said, they were saying it because they told they have to to be in the program. (laughs) Not because they felt it, not because they wanted it, not because I was worth it, but that was probably the script that they did, you know? I must have been having some kind of cult reference in my mind or something, like these people are going to be good to me because they have to, and that's the rules. And uh, so anyway, I, you know, I just kept coming back, and um, to jump ahead here, I... um, When I came to another meeting at the hospital, a few meetings past this, there was a literature table. And so I was sitting in my first meeting or second meeting, I don't remember what it was, and I thought, why do I need this meeting? There's a literature table over there. I'll buy the books, I'll buy the pamphlets, I'll take them home. If I have any questions, I can come here to get the questions answered. I wanted to have a self-created, self-help group, me, myself, and I. And be humble. If you don't get it and don't understand things, yeah, you could ask somebody else. But it was a disease of isolation. You know, it was a disease of isolation, and I wanted to do it by myself. I always say, you know, there's just wonderful promise we have from the step and the title of the chapter. There is a solution. And that's the good part. What's the bad part of this second step solution? It's not my solution. Not even near my solution. It's outside of me. And I was fixed with a compulsion to want to solve this damn thing myself. I didn't want to be dependent on other people. I wanted to do this home alone. I wanted to fix myself. So as you can see, I didn't understand anything about the problem and certainly didn't understand. But I just kept on uh, coming back. So the thing that I loved also at the, the, my home meeting at the time is they said, all you have to do is keep coming back. All you have to do is keep, they used to like chant that. I'm like, well, if you don't want to do anything, that's a great place to go, right? All I have to do is show up in the rooms. And, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't get the, uh, didn't get the uh, rest of it. And um, I thought, you know, Surely there has to be more of that. So the other thing that they emphasized so much, which just soothed my addiction, was if you can't do something now, Steve, it's just God's time. Just relax. You know, you'll get it. You'll get it. You know, since I've been in the program, 99.9% of the time, today is God's time. Now is God's time. Not when I get ready. Why would I leave the rooms and go out and suffer for months or years? Now, now uh, is the time. And then the other overarching concept was everything's just a suggestion. There are no musts. My ego, my disease just loved that. So I equated, we read from the literature pamphlet. I used to carry the literature pamphlet in my back pocket. Uh, it, would, it really, really helped me. But... <clears throat> It says that everything's just uh, just a suggestion, and I wasn't really up for uh, suggestions, and I was kind of lost. 
I was lost. I was lost big time. So I equated all these suggestions that you gave me, like, well, here's the big booklet, a uh, big book. Here's the AA 12 and 12. Here's the Journal of OA Recovery. You know, I was equating all these things as being equal. It's part of what I'm saying. All these things are equal, and they're all simply a suggestion. You don't have to have a sponsor. You don't have to read the big book. You don't have to write, you know. You can have contempt for AA and all the foundation things that came or not. It's all just a suggestion. And as many people here probably know, and it's been pointed out, the word must appears numerous, numerous times in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I read literature and there are things they say, like it's vitally important, when I see vital important in my big book or my 12 and 12, I put equal M and circle it that equals must. But it's only vitally important if you want to live and live happily. That's vitally important. So they say there are certain requirements in the big book. These are the requirements. So I started learning. I'm a slow learner, but I was learning a lot. I was so uh, wanting to be in control of things. Well, um, I guess this was really kind of arrogance, but I used the support for what I was thinking and doing by things I was told in the meeting, or, or you could say misused them. So it was eight years. I have to pause sometimes because I don't like saying this out loud. It was eight years before I got a sponsor. Eight years of sponsoring myself. When I got a sponsor, my program changed. My program changed. And I realized that there were a lot of musts, and I was told that. And together we get better doesn't mean, Steve, go get the pamphlets, go home and study them. Come back if the Spirit moves you. We get better together. And we get better together when we go to meetings, when we find sponsors. We actually work with sponsors. And we're open to suggestions. That's how we get better. We get better when we go to retreats. We go better when we come together here tonight, this afternoon, and in all kinds of ways. There is nothing like the 12 steps that I've ever seen in my life. It is a, it is a pathway to intimacy with yourself, intimacy with others, intimacy with life, intimacy with the spiritual way of living, intimacy with healing. And from the very beginning, it really pleased my heart that it was free. Nobody was going to get money off of writing a book and then, you know, selling stuff. Nobody was getting rich at the top of the pyramid. And the information didn't come from the top of the pyramid. It came from all of us. It came in practical ways from our own living experience. You don't have to be a scientist to figure the things this is a wonderful program, a simple program. And it's all, all just a gift. It's a gift to me. I, was, I, I, I said before to, to, to Judy that I don't know what you were doing on March 26th through 28th in 2010, but I was at a Milwaukee convention. And she had asked me, with very short notice, 
to be the speaker for the convention, that means once on Friday, twice on Saturday, and once on Sunday. So she was asking me to do her a favor, and I can only tell you that she did me a favor by asking me. When I went back, there were people I knew. There was a woman that I had a nice relationship. We were still friends, and she was there. I was happy to see her. We had people from Chicago, people that I've known from regional business assemblies, regional conventions, world service business assemblies, world service conventions. And I told my therapist at that time, I said, it was a love fest. It was a love fest. They liked me. They really liked me. And some of them said they loved me, and they loved me. And I could take that in. This is contrary to the rest of the way that I've lived life. Today I have more understanding. Okay, The first step gives me acceptance of myself. I'm not a bad person. I have a bad disease. I didn't ask for it. I didn't sign up for it. If it could have been something else, I would like some choices, please. I was not given a choice. This is what, this is what, this is what I had. So it gives me a chance to accept myself and say I'm not a bad person. Character defects. I'm not a bad person, but I have character defects. That's the bad news. The good news is we have a program where you can dedicate yourself to overcoming those character defects. So you can be more happy, more joyous, and more free. And you can face life and life's challenges in a sober way, in an adult way. I love some of the folks who say, show up until you grow up. I'm still doing some of that stuff. And I just want to qualify in case there's any here. Show up and grow up. Show up until you grow up is not an invitation to grow up and leave the program. <laughs> it's not like, oh, now I'm an adult. Now I'm gone. Thank you, good people. See you later. I'm taking this with me for the rest of my life. I don't know about you. Anybody else, you know? Why do you want to, to, to uh, give up? I was speaking uh, recently, and I talked, uh, I talked about how the, 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 the promise that my sponsor... My sponsor, Joe, referred me to so many times, is that if I do what I'm asked to do, the best days of my life are still ahead. And I want to say to you, without question, that the disease makes everything worse in my life, and recovery can make everything better in life. And you don't stop. There is no glass ceiling. You can continue to be happier and happier and happier. Life and your higher power is going to give you more challenges, and now you're going to get more tools and build up more strength so you can do those things. And so here I'm going to be 72 years old, and I can tell you that my life is better than it ever has began, and God and the program is not finished with me, and I am not finished with this program. And it's just a wonderful thing. It's an absolute uh, blessing and a gift. I didn't ask for it. You know, I was kind of uncomfortable about it, but it just gets better and better and better. 
So the program with the with the uh, with the making amends, making amends to myself. As a procrastinator, every time I refuse to procrastinate, I write things down and I do my very best not to procrastinate. That's a living in amends to a recovering procrastinator. And um, so all I can say, it's a wonderful uh, program that keeps on getting better. I'm a little nostalgic here. I I had showed you that I brought this from this convention. I I have a pin-on from New York City. This is is my emphasis on people now. And it's got a Statue of Liberty on it. And um, it is from... 1997. This program took me out of my old life and is putting me into a new life. This program took me out of, off the couch, out of the apartment and into life. Here I am flying to New York City to go to an OA World Service convention. And who do I meet in the, in the lobby when, when I, after he checked in? I meet Roseanne. That's who I meet. This book had just coming out at that time, and she was signing books. I have, I have a signed book that uh, I gave to someone else, and one of my friends, bless his heart, may he rest in peace, Chris R., he had given me this book and inscribed it. Here I am in New York City on Times Square. I'd never been to New York City before, and I had not been on Times Square. And Roseanne's there, and I'm meeting all these people. I got together with some friends, and we went on a boat. We went on to Ellis Island. I live in Chicago. There are so many immigrants, second generations, first generations. Ellis Island touched my heart more than the Statue of Liberty did. But I was glad to see the Statue of Liberty. And then we came back to the, uh, back to the, back to the hotel. And it was just absolutely a wonderful experience to be around all these people and be able to talk to them. And I, by maybe three or four times, I spoke to Roseanne face-to-face, and that was another, another gift to me. She had been struggling and having some problems, and I was at a convention in New Orleans. I had never been to New Orleans before, right next to the French Quarter. We always go in style. I just want to let you know that. <laughs> And uh, Roseanne was there, and I talked to her because I'd seen you before, and she was taking medication, and she, was, she spoke about this, so this is on tape. She, she had spoke about the difficulties she had because she was taking different medications. She was eating the same food, and she was getting fatter. She didn't mention her metabolism. Anybody know about metabolism and what happens? <laughs> and uh, so I told her, like, she looked better and all, and she was very pleased. And um, so here's something that could only happen on Overeaters Anonymous. We're getting back after the convention, and we go to the airport in New Orleans to fly back. And we're in a particular area in a gate where nobody's there, nothing's happening. So a bunch of the people. And Roseanne walked by, and she came over and talked to us. She suggested that we have an OA meeting in the airport. And here's a show and tell time. And I had a big book. With me, with me. And so I could read how it works, and we could each talk about the gifts that we had gotten from being at the convention. And it was just a wonderful thing. And I took a bus ride 
to see New Orleans, to see the levees. I said, how could anybody live near a levee? I don't know. I didn't get that then, you know. There was a wonderful woman, and she was the chair of the convention. I can't think of her name, but she was from New Orleans. They had this thing. I'll step back. She'd say, aye, like that, all the time, right? You were there. Say it all the time. So it was such a high-spirited thing. And I saw the levees, and I went back home, and when they had the hurricane, you may have problems with your meetings. Can you imagine if the building you're Meeting wasn't there anymore? That you can't get around the city? And you're not going back to that meeting because that building is destroyed. And all the crazy things, you know, sad things that happen. And so I could call this woman up. I knew her from World Service. And, you know, wish her, wish her uh, well. So this is people being with people, just an extraordinary extraordinary kinds of ways. Left to my own accord, I would not have done these things. And I still have a heart for New Orleans. I still have a heart for Roseanne. I still have a heart for a guy named A.G. My first convention was in Minneapolis Twin Cities, and Roseanne couldn't be there, so A.G. was there, and he spoke twice. And he was a, a funny, sharp, smart, strong businessman. And to have a masculine voice and a masculine presence meant something to me. I appreciate it. I've long accepted that most of the people in the rooms are women. I was telling somebody this just one day I went to this meeting that I was going to regularly, and I was the only man there. There were 36 women and me. Now, that didn't really bother me, but that was really different. That was really different. So A.G. was a great inspirer to me, he, he, uh, inspiration to me in uh, so many ways, and he did so much service. You know, I miss him, and uh, I wish him well. So we have a building process. We're meeting people at home. We're meeting people at World Service Conventions. At the New York Convention, we went out. They rented two boats, touristy kind of boats. So we were, it was the 4th of July weekend, and they rented boats for us to go to see the fireworks in the bay. It makes me, it chokes me up. You know, I could have been home alone watching reruns on TV, feeding my face, but I have a different life now. I'm going to New York where I'd never been, and I'm meeting other people, and it was just a wonderful thing, just a gift of the program, but it's all about people getting together, doing things together. Now, I'd gone to world service conventions, business assemblies, regional, same thing, conventions, so I was going to the world service convention in Cleveland, and I was with three other guys. We were draw, driving from, and then I realized that all four of us were speaking at the convention <laughs> that was there. And I saw my sponsor there, and I met his wife, who I had met many times. And I noticed something. Cleveland is in the Region 5, so the people running the convention, many of the speakers, were all people I knew from, from business assemblies, and from conventions themselves. I've served on convention committees. So you live with people and work with people and do things to get, make things happen. 
And it's a lot of work, and it can be hard, and everybody doesn't always get along. Anybody ever experienced that? Room for improvement. Room for improvement. And, uh, you know, issues come up. So many things are so controversial. But what a wonderful gift it was for me to go to these all places. I was in Dallas, Texas at an OA World Service Convention. And I'm a vegan and uh, a healthy kind of a vegan. And the hotel there was one of those ones that was very expensive. They had one of those big things and then the ball, the dining room that like moved around. So that wasn't for me. So I walked about two and a half blocks, two and a half blocks away, and I looked up. I looked up, and there was the book depository building where Oswald, they say, killed the president. I walked down the sidewalk in front of the book depository room, and I looked up at the third floor window. I looked ahead, and I saw the grassy knoll, and I walked up the grassy knoll. The number of times I had seen this in news clips, documentaries, TV shows, dramatizations, and this was part of my history. When I was in seventh grade, Kennedy was killed during the day, and I went, and our teacher turned red, she started to cry, and she left the room. She had abandoned a classroom full of kids because I guess she didn't want to cry, but it was a very strange thing. I'm just saying this all happened because people made decisions. There were volunteers, there were sign-up sheets. And all these wonderful things can happen. And uh, my, my, my sponsor, Joe, said, uh, I, I've got this written down. He said a number of things that really stick with me. He said, the most important, this is what he said to me, the most important thing anybody in the program needs to hear, especially if they're a newcomer, and especially if they're in trouble, is get a sponsor and work the steps. Get a sponsor, work the steps. Get a sponsor, work the steps. So when I hear, you know, really nice, succinct things, sometimes I have add-ons to them. I have to amend them. And I said to Joe, one time I explained to him, I said, when you say find a sponsor and work the steps to an addict like me, those are two separate things. So find a sponsor and work the steps with the sponsor. <laughs> it's like some people come in like, well, you're my sponsor, but you're going to make me work the steps with you? You know, well, no, I'm not going to make you, but I don't think I can sponsor you if you're not interested in the steps. That's what I do, you know? That's what I do. I'd be ha- happy to. So uh, find a sponsor and work the steps. So take a look, you know, if you're going in downward spin, or maybe you need to get a new sponsor that you need to pray for some courage to say this isn't working. You know, Joe and I worked for a very long time all through all 12 steps. We played racquetball together. He came to Chicago with his wife sometimes, a great friend. Bless his heart, he passed away some uh, months ago. And, and a, a couple weeks before, I had called him, and I had tried calling him, and uh, he wasn't picking up the phone. His wife was very ill. He was spending a lot of time with her. Meanwhile, he had a lot of sicknesses. And so I told him of the love, the respect and the admiration that I had for him as a man and a sponsor. And he told me that he felt the same way towards me. This is a gift of a relationship. And we drifted apart, and that was okay. I tell people, like some people move off, move away, and they're going to drift away. I said, don't worry about it. We're friends for life. 
Whenever you want to, give me a call about anything. Sometimes I call old sponsees just to, I have an anniversary, you know, I have an anniversary. And uh, it's just so, so, this is like being a human on the highest level, you know. I don't know, maybe there are higher levels. This is like at a great level. Let's just say it's great, okay? <laughs> on a great uh, level. Thank you. And, uh, and all it wants us to do is to work together as a group. Together we get better. And that means sponsor, you know, my, my recovery changed radically. There are three things that happened. I realized I was a sugar addict, and I had to do, I hate to say this word because I don't hear it enough, but you got to go through withdrawal. You got to stop what you're doing when it's not working for you. Whether it's an activity addiction or a substance addiction, you have to stop. The bad news, you don't want to stop, and it's hard. But the good news is one day at a time it gets better, and then you can be in a process of getting freer and freer all the time. And if you've got a better idea, let me know. I want to know what works better. You know, but this is what, this is what I found. Joe told me that uh, if my mind ever tells me it's not that bad to remember that it is that bad, it's even worse. And um, my current sponsor says uh, to me, that I keep my abstinence in black and white so I can live my life in color. Now, I put a little, based on my age and my reference, I keep my abstinence in black and white so I can live my life in living color. Do you remember when they were going from black and white? It was like a big pitch. Now in living color. Bonanza, you know, <laughs> or a movie. So that's one of my amends. Glorious living color. And, and uh, so he's just, you know, he's just a, a wonderful spon- sponsor and all, all there is. I've been told that I'm a good sponsor. So it's just people weaving in and out of their lives. The addiction makes everything worse. The program makes things better. There's no limit to the bottom you can go in the downward spiral of addiction. Maybe it's not suicidal ideation. Maybe it's suicide. Maybe you were just, you know, the person's diabetic. They're getting treated. They go in diabetic coma. They go to the hospital. Nowhere does it say in the medical report that they overdosed on a gallon of ice cream. But they knew they were diabetic. They knew they were not in good health. And they ate not ice cream, a a gallon of ice cream. And that's like the crazy addiction. So going bad, loneliness, suicide, suicidal ideation, lonely, miserable, self-loathing, self-pitying, just... There's no bottom to it. There is no ceiling on how high we can go in our growth and development spiritually. We live in a needy world. People need all of us. They need all of us. They need a friend. They need someone who's honest, has integrity. Someone who's not home alone all the time, but someone who's living in the world. So, I, you know, my, my life has changed just 
just getting out of the house has changed my life. Last night I was at Orchestra Hall in Chicago, Illinois, and I saw John Williams conduct his famous movie music. He's 91 years old. He had a hard time getting up there. It was a sold-out performance. It was sold a performance. The love that he had for the people there and the love we had for him was just, was just, just wonderful. And, and uh, he played wonderfully. People stood up after he did individual tunes. They don't do that. Members of the orchestra stood up to applaud him after he finished a tune. They don't normally do that. So I'm experiencing a renaissance in my life and interest in the arts that never had before. This program is still getting out me getting out of myself. It's still getting me out of my home and and feeding me with just wonderful, wonderful things like this. So the best years of my life are still ahead, and that's because I'm going to keep on working the program. I will not uh, graduate. I just want to say, oh, I told you about the self-help, uh, help, self-help group that, uh, that I wanted it to be. And if I would have, you know, that could have, like, disqualified me for ever coming back in the rooms. Thank God. So I got five minutes. So that's what I want to say to you, is that we're all people, and we're very different, and we have different higher powers. We have different ways we work the steps. We have different priorities. But we really need to get along and to respect, to respect ourselves to respect each other and hold ourselves to the higher standards. The tenth step is a daily way you can look at who you are and what you're doing and simply improve on a daily basis. There's no fee for me telling you that. There's no encyclopedia of books that you have to read. It's just plain. It's just simple there. Be awareness and take action. And if you want to argue... Bite your lip. Bite your lip. And wait till you can talk soberly. Hey, there's an idea, right? Talk soberly. So all throughout the program, there's just all of these wonderful, wonderful things. And uh, the last thing I'll say is that one of my sponsors told me, he said to me, Steve, uh, you know, these programs are based on AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said the most important one of one of the most important definitions or meanings of alcoholism is attitude adjustment. Attitude adjustment. When it comes down to it, what is our attitude? My attitude was thinking like, oh, I can handle this myself. What's the deal? You know, wrong. And then just throughout the process of doing the simplest things, that's working the 12 steps, you have a process of attitude adjustment, self-acceptance, you're making amends, and you're trying to heal the best you can. How can you do anything better than the best you can? That's all that's required for us. Some go slow, you know. Uh, you don't, like, ask me to get off the podium because it took me eight years to get a sponsor. We don't have someone standing at the doorway, like, do you have a sponsor? And then they look at a card and say, well, you haven't had a sponsor. You've been in for a year. Come back when you get a sponsor. That's not how we are. We are open heart. We have an open program. We want to include everybody. We want to be nicer to ourselves, our close ones. We want to be nicer and friendlier to the world. 
This is a better life than the addiction. This is a better life. And with this, I thank you that you offered me the gift, the gift of coming to speak with you today. Thank you.